If anyone had asked Anthony Burgess why he and his wife Lynn were proposing to visit Leningrad in the summer of 1961, he surely would have found it difficult to formulate a straightforward reply. One of the main incentives was that his UK publisher Heinemann had offered to advance Burgess's travel expenses against future royalties if he would use his time gathering material for a Cold War fiction novel. In the first surviving letter concerning A Clockwork Orange, written in April 1961, Burgess wrote, I'm in the early stages of a novel about juvenile delinquents in the future. I'm fabricating with difficulty a teenage dialect compounded equally of American and Russian roots. There's a lot, I think, to be done in this field. Welcome to House of Words, a podcast about writers, risk-takers, and violence. I'm your host, Jason Moore Hardin, and on this episode, we explore A Clockwork Orange by Anthony Burgess. I didn't think, I experimented." End quote. The futuristic element mentioned in the first letter is clearly visible in the finished novel as it makes reference to satellite television worldcasts. Now concerning the language, however, Burgess had begun to teach himself Russian early in 1961 while in London, before the trip to Leningrad. As he began to study the language, it occurred to him that it might be possible to write a novel narrated in an invented slang which would be a hybrid of English and Russian with elements of Romany, Lancashire dialect, and Cockney rhyming slang. He then set about the task of compiling a modified Russian vocabulary of about 200 words with the intention of brainwashing the reader into learning the basics of Russian. But as stated in the letter, he originally planned that his invented language, the Nadsat language, would be a combination of American English and Russian rather than British English and Russian. Now, the Americanism of the language was apparently dropped somewhere in the early phases of the writing, although one characteristic remains, which is the use of the word like as a syntactical filler by Alex. The first 60 pages of this new novel, which he had proposed would be called A Clockwork Orange, upon the birth of the idea, were completed before he left for Leningrad in June 1961. A letter from 1961 confirms that Dostoevsky was at the front of his mind as he was at work on the early section of the novel. Shortly after he had finished the first seven chapters, he wrote in a letter to his friends, I'm writing this to you before trying to push on with my Clockwork Orange book. I've just completed part one, which is just sheer crime. Now comes punishment. The whole thing's making me rather sick. My horrible juvenile delinquent hero is emerging as too sympathetic a character, almost Christ-like, set upon by the scourging police. You see what I mean by moral deterioration? He would also find inspiration by witnessing Russian hoodlums during his stay in Leningrad when he and his wife visited the Metropole restaurant one evening. 
Seeing as they both were quite heavy alcoholics, they were getting set to leave around three in the morning after drinking there all evening and into the night. As they were about to exit the establishment, he would later write, a hellish noise of brawling and banging and smashed glass came from the street, which was followed by a frenzied hammering on the front door. The commotion was caused by still Yagi, which meant young Russian teddy boys armed with heavy sticks and broken bottles. When the door was opened, the still Yagi politely stepped aside to make way for Anthony and his wife. Now, after the door to the restaurant was closed shut again, the men resumed their shouting and bottle-breaking. It wasn't their behavior, however, that caught Anthony's attention. Rather, it was how well-dressed these violent youth were. To the eye of the novelist, these Russian thugs, dressed in the height of Soviet summer fashion, were virtually indistinguishable from their suited, knuckle-duster-wielding English counterparts. For this reason, it seems reasonable that Burgess decided to call his protagonist friends droogs, close to the Russian word for friends, drugi. What the incident at the Metropole also inspired was the novel's constant refusal to make it clear whether the action of the book is taking place in England, mainland Europe, or somewhere in the former Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. What is additionally important about this is that it attempts to convey that the story of the protagonist, Alex, might happen anywhere. The ambiguous setting allows Burgess to present teenage aggression as a universal phenomenon and that this idea of youth carries more significance than either politics or geography. In another letter, he expresses concern when it comes to the novel's violence. He writes that he's been pushing on desperately with the book, which was nearing its climax and denouement. He also added that because of the language and the violence, it could easily be misunderstood. He thought that many would hate it because, despite the fact that the violence was intended to be boring, many critics wouldn't see it that way. A tone of pessimism continued as he talked about reaching the novel's conclusion, writing, I just plod on and this week hope to bring a clockwork orange to its better end, about 70,000 words only, or even less. I don't think readers will be able to take all that much of it. I'm not at all satisfied, but I obviously can't scrap it now. Now, something usually overlooked in discussions about the novel's violence, however, is how much of it is not explored in detail. An example of this is when Alex is on the point of molesting the two ten-year-old Titsas and says, What actually was done that afternoon, there is no need to describe, brothers, as you may easily guess all. Later, while he is forced to watch scenes of sexual violence during the Ludovico brainwashing, we are told... I do not wish to describe, brothers, what are the horrible fishes I was like forced to vidi that afternoon. Unlike its later film adaptation, the book pointedly declines at such moment to titillate or to excite. After their stay in Leningrad, as Anthony and Lynn sailed back to London, he was already contemplating the hard task of finishing A Clockwork Orange. The ending of the novel proved to be an area of special difficulty. This is particularly proven by the fact that he would continue to revise and rework it more than 30 years later. Now, according to James Michi, Burgess's editor at Heinemann, 
Burgess sent him the first section of the book and waited to continue with the rest of the book until after receiving editorial advice. Michi remembers only giving Burgess one piece of advice, and this was that he had to make the acceleration of this new language gradual. Michi was worried that if there was too much of a curve in learning this new language, the simple-minded readers would simply give up before the book really got started. Michi would later deem that one of the great successes of the book was that you could read it and learn a new vocabulary at the same time and do so rather easily. A few examples from the TypeScript illustrate how the novel took shape over the course of the four months when Burgess was composing and revising it between April and August 1961. In the margin of page 20, next to the word Sheena, which means wife, he asks whether there might be a better alternative to the word. He goes on and on to question the words of his new language with moderate frequency throughout the TypeScript. He wonders if the word drug should be druk instead, and writes that he is not too happy with the word drentrum, which is one of the drugs sold with the old maloko plus at the Korova milk bar. He also altered the word for laughing from smeeking to smeking. Furthermore, he frequently used the left-hand margin to provide Cyrillic transliterations of Nadsat words. The general exercise in this is the thickening or enriching of the Natsat language. For instance, when Alex is about to seduce the titsas from the disc boutique, Burgess alters the line, aha, I know what you want, I think, to the rakish mock Elizabethan, aha, I know what thou wantest, I thinkest. Thus, a clockwork orange reveals itself to be a text which became steadily more complex from a linguistic point of view during the process of revision. One quite interesting comment on the TypeScript raises a point about cultural history. When Alex and his gang go out with their maskies or disguises, one of the masks shows the face of none other than Elvis Presley. Next to the words Elvis Presley, Burgess wrote, will this name be known when book appears? It seems that Burgess was worried that Elvis could be a passing fashion, and that he wouldn't be recognizable soon after the book's release. The TypeScript also shows a part that would be cut. This is four bars of music which accompany the prisoner's hymn in Part 2, Chapter 1. The bars of music, composed by Burgess, by the way, are in the key of G minor, and it is approximately in the style of one of Bach's chorales. Now, the most likely reason for the absence of this music in the Heinemann edition is that the printing cost of inserting these four bars would have been prohibitive as the 1962 edition was published a couple years before cheap offset lithography became widely available. Another significant feature of the TypeScript is the presence of illustrations. Burgess provided a series of seven-line drawings. One of the Millicents, the Natsat word for police officer who arrests Alex, is depicted as an ill-shaven, ape-like thug, and throughout the text we find other images of exploding clockwork oranges disgorging their cogs. 
The most interesting drawing is the one which shows narrator Alex as Burgess chose to sketch him dressed in what he would call the height of fashion, with a dangling quiff of hair, large padded shoulders, and an extravagant cravat. These pictures are slapdash pen and ink affairs drawn in high speed. It may be that Burgess was at one time thinking of A Clockwork Orange as an illustrated novel, but it is also possible that the drawings were included merely for the sake of whimsical decoration or a private joke between Burgess and his editor. The UK Heinemann edition from 1962 has 21 chapters, while the US Norton edition of 1963 wound up at chapter 20. Although Burgess believed that the presence or absence of this 21st chapter made a significant difference to the meaning of the novel, it is evident from his writings on the subject that he held different opinions at different times as to which ending was the correct one. In the typescript, there is a most revealing annotation concerning the disputed 21st chapter. At the end of Part 3, Chapter 6, there is a note in his handwriting asking, Should we end here? Following that is an optional epilogue. According to him, one of the main reasons the final chapter was left out from the U.S. edition is that he felt that he wasn't in a very strong position to negotiate or argue when the change was suggested or demanded, all depending on who you believe. In 1961, when the typescript had been offered to U.S. publisher Norton in New York, he was informed that the American readers would prefer a more unredemptive ending, and furthermore, he was told that the managing editor at Norton was unwilling to publish the novel without the excision of the final chapter. Burgess would later explain in an interview that he was very dubious about the book itself upon completing it and felt too close to it to question their judgment. He thought, well, they could be right. Although he would also state that he might have given in a bit too easily. Norton Publishing denied that this had been a condition in order to get the novel published in the U.S. Still, Burgess would continue to state his version of the story. In the introduction to the revised 1987 Norton edition, which Burgess called a clockwork orange, resucked, he wrote that he allowed himself to be talked into omitting the final chapter for financial reasons, writing, I needed money back in 1961, and if the condition of the book's acceptance was also its truncation, well, so be it. A Clockwork Orange was published on the 14th of May, 1962, in an edition of 6,000 copies. Burgess was frustrated by the disappointing early reviews, many of which criticized him, calling his newly invented Nazat language difficult to get through and critiquing his lack of imagination concerning the future. Later in life, he came to regard the novel as a burden and an embarrassment. Although he acknowledged that the fame he enjoyed was to a large extent bound up with the public's awareness of Kubrick's film, it disappointed him that this short and uncharacteristic novel was better known than other works which pleased him more. When asked in 1983 in an interview to name his favorite book, he replied that he was proud to have written parts of The Rights to Answer, all of M.F., and the fourth chapter of Napoleon's Symphony. 
Nevertheless, he continued to write Clockwork Orange articles until the end of his life. Speak about the book and the film in interviews, write prefaces to new editions of the novel, and make new stage adaptations with music. As usual, let's end this episode with a quote from the creator of the mechanical fruit himself. Readers are plentiful, thinkers are rare. End quote. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and will spread the word about the podcast. Once again, I have been your host, Jason Nemoa Hardin. We here at House of Words ask that you please consider helping to make this show easier to produce and more frequent by contributing on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash houseofwords or paypal.me slash houseofwordspodcast. Alternatively, you can subscribe and encourage others to subscribe to our YouTube page, House of Words Podcast. Every little bit helps more than you might think. Until next time, keep turning those pages. House of Words is written and produced by Crystal M. Sanchez. Narrated and written by me, Jason Lemore Harden. And music by Creature Nine and Wood. All rights and ownership belong to Crystal M. Sanchez and Jason Lemore Harden. <laughs>